Today on the show, we hear astonishing reports of explosive growth overseas. But is all that glitters gold? This movement was connected to one of my colleagues. And I was kind of on this island by accident. And um, I got to go into villages with this group and kind of see what they were doing. I got to see how they were trained, what methods they were employing. And what I saw was pretty disturbing. I saw them come in kind of in rapid fashion with sort of these formulaic methods. A firsthand perspective from a missionary in South Asia on today's show. But first, an important message. If you're a regular listener to this show, we wanted to say thank you. Without the Lord's help and without you, we wouldn't still be doing this. But we also want you to know that this show wouldn't exist if it weren't for ABWE International and ABWE missionaries like Justin, who's a missionary in a Muslim country in Asia. So let me tell you about him. One day, he was wandering a crowded street doing street evangelism. He'd been doing it every morning for nine months with no results. He was discouraged. He sat down at an outdoor coffee shop. Local men crowded the table, fraternizing before the start of the workday. Justin tried to start a spiritual conversation with the Muslim man seated next to him, and the man, disinterested, walked off. But before Justin could even process the rejection, he heard a voice speaking to him in broken English. The voice said, You said sins forgiven. How? It was another Muslim man who had been sitting next to him who was listening silently the whole time. Justin, knowing the dangers of doing evangelism openly in this country, started to whisper to him about Jesus. They crept closer and closer until they were inches apart. They were looking around for danger the whole time. Justin whispered the gospel into this man's ear. And the man grabbed him by the shoulders, pushed him back and said, many of us want to know this message, but we're not allowed to ask. That's what life is like in a country where evangelism is illegal, and more than 130 ABWE workers like Justin are serving in places like this. Every gift to ABWE's Global Gospel Fund goes to critical staffing, support, training, and services to advance the gospels of the lost and unreached through faithful workers like Justin. So learn more and become a partner with ABWE at abwe.org partner. That's abwe.org partner. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Communications for ABWE, joined again by Scott Dunford, pastor of Redeemer Church in Fremont, California, and person who does things with ABWE. I, I can't decide what we want to call that. It just it just keeps morphing yeah. with every iteration. Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, Very good. Looking forward to diving into this discussion. And I love the, get, the kind of interviews we get to do. Kinds of things I get to do for ABWE. Yeah. One week from today, we'll actually be sitting together in person and we'll be recording. And maybe nobody cares about that except for us. But I'm excited for that. We're even going to be breaking bread together. And, and that's just that's just good. I'm just looking forward to that. But hey, we we do have a pretty important topic coming up today. I'm To be honest with you, I'm not entirely sure how to set up today's interview. But there are some pretty big things that we want to hit on. First, just want to let you guys know that you've heard us talk about this Radius conference that's coming up a little bit later this month, and Scott and I will be there doing live streaming. Follow us on our Facebook page so that you can watch those um, live uh, videos and interviews as they're coming out. We're going to be giving you guys content there for two days in a row. We're excited about that. Those will be posting throughout those two days. 
But if you're interested in attending and can't come in person to Minneapolis, as I'm sure many people can't just hop on a plane and get to Minneapolis, what you can do is watch online. You'll even be able to watch the first day we're doing a panel live on stage. You can watch all of that online from Radius. But if you go to missionspodcast.com slash Radius, missionspodcast.com slash Radius, you will get 33% off your online registration. Technically, it's 33.333, you know, percent off infinite kind of that. Yes. Yeah. It's a third. It's it's one third off of your ticket price. Anyway, we think that would be a value to you. We'd love for you to uh, follow what's happening there. And we're excited about the conversations we're going to get to have just as we are, Scott, excited about this conversation with our guest. Yes, a missionary that is working in a place that we need to be pretty serious about security. And so we're going to call him Brad. Excited to have Brad, uh, a friend of many of the people that we're friends with. And we just want you to tell us a little bit about your story. Tell us a little bit of who you are, what you can share, where you're serving, and a little bit about what your ministry is looking like currently. Well, hey, guys, thank you for, for having me on. Um, yeah, so I uh, I serve in Southeast Asia. I've been there for a little bit over three years. Um, I, I'm there with my wife. Uh, we had a we added a couple couple kids to the mix while we were over there. We now have three kids. Nice. So um, we had just the joy of, of serving um, between two different countries in Southeast Asia um, over the span of that three years. Um, and the Lord was just incredibly kind to us during our, our time overseas. We, we um, have recently been back in the States um, for a while now due to the, the COVID crisis and just um, our country being locked down. Haven't been able to get back in for um, a little over a year now, um, but our hearts and our prayers um, are still directed towards that, that window of the world, Southeast Asia. Um, and uh, we are recovering and rejuvenating. We got a little little banged up uh, while we were overseas. Um, but at the same time, uh, we saw some incredible things happen. And um, it really was a joy to serve in Southeast Asia. Mm, needy part of the world. So yeah. we hear stories. Let's just start by saying that we, we hear stories. We read books. We see tweets. We see reports of pretty sensational statistics about the, the explosion of, of the church and church planting movements, disciple making movements. We've talked about those things on the show before, but especially in the part of the world where you serve. Have you ever read A Wind in the House of Islam? I have read bits and, and pieces from from that book. Right. So we you know, we read that book, we hear these stories from there like, oh man, like the the Muslim world and Southeast Asia is just coming to Christ in the in a way that has never been seen before. Droves. Right. So right. we read that we want to be excited about it, but then we hear other people saying like, well, <laughs> take a time out on that. So what's your perspective on this? Yeah, yeah. So before we launched out overseas, um, you know, we heard um, a lot of stories, just a lot of different accounts of ex- you know explosive growth and, and rapid reproduction. And, um, you know, to be honest, in, in our training time, we were even schooled um, in a lot of the kind of the prevailing uh, missionary methodologies of, of the current moment in missions. And so, um, we were, we were familiarized with that world very quickly. Um, and we, you know, we heard a little bit about insider movement and kind of that that was sort of the old, the old trend. Um, and now it's really about movements and and all this stuff. And so we got overseas and, um, we, you know, we, we heard about it, but we didn't quite expect it to be, 
uh, I guess you could say as uh, prevailing as as it is. Um, that is most definitely the mm. the air that the missions world breathes. Um, this sort of rapid uh, reproduction movement methodology. Um, and yeah, as soon as we hit the ground, um, we heard stories of of movements in in our city. Um, we were working primarily around Muslims. Um, but definitely heard that there were things going on. Um, I am a curious individual, so I wanted to know right right from the gate, kind of where where's this happening? Where's all the action? And um, I I uh, connected with some colleagues and some other missionaries to try to see if I could find it, and um, I didn't find a whole lot of of accurate kind of well defined church growth um, in in the area. I, I didn't see it. Um, and, uh, but I, I heard very often that it very much did indeed exist. I had I actually had my own friend, um, who was a national believer. Um, and I got into the mix with him, discipling him and, um, actually a businessman. Um, he came from an Island, um, that was, is very unreached and unengaged. And he told me that he has some family members on this Island that had never, never heard the gospel. And he asked me if I wanted to fly with him to this Island and, and actually engage his family. Um, and so I decided to do that. I went over mm. to this island and, and we went into these villages and it, he was right. I mean, his family members had never had never heard the gospel. Um, and so we were kind of mixing it up with them and, and sharing the gospel and, and, and uh, getting to know them. Um, my friend told me that there was another group that would be joining them later. Um, they were flying in, but coming in later, and they were also going to be doing ministry alongside us. Um, it turns out that this group that came to join um, was connected to this movement. And, um, I got to go into villages with this group and kind of see, um, what they were um, doing. I got to see how they were trained, what methods they were employing. And, um, what I saw was pretty disturbing, uh, to say the least. Um, I saw them come in kind of in rapid fashion with sort of these formulaic methods, um, that, um, like what can you just explain that a little bit more? Sure. Cause when we hear form, we are all, we all have been trained on some formulaic methods. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so. sure. Yeah. Well, um, this particular method, um, it was connected, it's connected to, you know, church planting movement methodology, um, in general. And so, um, it's kind of a reductionistic gospel presentation. Um, it relies very heavily on, um, person of peace. Um, so you're, you're kind of the missionary or the, the evangelizer sub, sort of subjectively determining who a person of peace is, uh, in, in, you know, a particular exchange, a gospel exchange. Um, and the, the presentation of the gospel is sort of used as the filter for whether or not that person, um, is a person of peace or not. So if they don't accept this reductionistic gospel presentation, um, then they are not a person of peace and you kind of shake the dust off your feet and go to the next person. And so they were, Now know. let me, let me stop sure. you real quick, Brad, because to me, um, I, I, I believe in the sovereignty of God and evangelism. I, I think that that approach sounds sound that that's, that sounds biblical, right? That, that if a person is a person of peace, you know, air, air quotes around that, maybe, they're going to respond favorably to the gospel, right? The spirit is is working in their hearts. We're dependent on the work of the spirit for regeneration, right? Mm-hmm. For for somebody to have their eyes open to the gospel. So what else would I use as a filter instead? So just help us unpack that critique that's sure. there. Because I, I hear where you're coming from, but I don't want to rush over that either. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you know, that there are some differing views on, on you know, that Luke 10 passage and, and the person of peace and, and what that actually means. Um, you know, I, I'm more inclined to think that the person of peace in that passage is someone who um, has already, by faith, believed upon the gospel. 
Um, and so, um, yeah, you know, the, the, the method itself is assuming that, um, these, uh, that these, these people of peace are unbelievers, um, that have not, um, received the gospel. Um, whereas I would go into a situation and, and, proclaim the gospel and um the the person of peace would be someone who has uh repented um and who believed believes upon, upon the gospel and so i'm assuming that to be what what that passage is getting at um but with this method in particular um the the one of the big assumptions there well, first of all the entire method is 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 sort of established upon an assumption that the primary way of evangelism is broad indiscriminate seed sowing um, and so you kind of, you come into these um, situations that are uh, kind of random. You don't necessarily know the people, you don't have a, a relationship or rapport. And um, you just, you, you use a, a very quick uh, multiplicative method and you try to get as many people to hear it as possible. And so one of the ways that you move on quickly is to um, ascertain whether that person's a person of peace or not. In this encounter that I was involved in, um, we would go into a village and the the group would employ this method um, and they would just kind of move from from little house to little house based on who would, would receive this presentation. And one time we went to a, a house, it was actually the relatives of my friend, and um, I was explaining the gospel with two ladies actually, and uh, this this national leader who was with that group kind of swooped in. He, uh, he interrupted me and just kind of barreled through um, with this this presentation. He, I could tell that these ladies were visibly uncomfortable, um, and he kind of got them to sort of confess that they were believers, um, and then he started pressuring them to be baptized um, immediately. Um, I saw that these ladies were visibly uncomfortable. Um, and I pulled my friend uh, aside um, a few moments later, and um, I asked him if he could tell that these ladies were uncomfortable and um, almost seemed as though they were pressured to say yes to the conversation. Um, he said he didn't really notice that. Um, he was just going off of what they said. They confessed that Jesus is, is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, so therefore they are believers and they need to be baptized. So I saw... Um, which for which for a Muslim they do believe that Jesus is Al Masi. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's nothing revolutionary about that. Exactly. Yeah. And so I guess what I was most concerned by was, um, you know, I was I was concerned with these ladies. I, first of all, they they're human beings, and they uh -huh. they were visibly uncomfortable. And um, my my um, you know this this partner this this person who came over um, he he sort of um, bypassed some of the humanity in these, in these ladies and just kind of had an agenda. He needed to get them to, um, to, you know, confess that Jesus, um, confess that they believe, um, in this presentation and, um, and then he needed to get those baptisms in. Um, I, I actually, uh, later ended up talking to this guy. We had some discussion about the book of Acts. He, you know, looked at Acts as more of a kind of a, um, a prescriptive kind of church planting manual. Um, for his work. And we had some discussions about, you know, just hermeneutics there. And I ended up uh, telling him that these ladies looked uncomfortable. I ended up going back to this house and talking to the ladies and asked them if they understood what he had said um, in that presentation. They didn't understand the gospel. They didn't um, really even remember what they said. And they admitted that they felt pressured um, to, to say yes to, to his presentation. And so, um, yeah, that was a very disturbing uh, experience. Um, I talked to that guy a little bit more on that trip, um, and he actually ended up confessing to me that he feels a lot of pressure from the leaders that are affiliated with uh, 
with the organization um, and that he felt a lot of pressure. So here's a question for you. Um, you know, we've had some leaders that are, you know, kind of leaders in the disciple making movement on our show. And of course, like I also worked, you know, in, in the Islamic world and know people that were using these kinds of methods and they're good. If you were to, if I were to bring this up to them, they'd be like, well, that is not what we're trying to do. You know, I mean, from your perspective, and I realize you're one guy, um, do you think that this is kind of a one-off or do you think that this is something that is actually more systemic? I think it is. I think it is a bit more, um, systemic, um, because I have, you know, I have quite a few, few colleagues, um, Western missionaries, um, that are, um, just almost dogmatically attached, um, to some, to some of these methods. And, um, I get it. I think, I think for the most part, my brothers and sisters that are captivated by these, these rapid reproduction type methods that they are sincere, that they love the gospel. Um, and that even, even doctrinally they're, they're pretty sound. Um, I just think that, you know, it's in Southeast Asia, it's, it's hard ground. It's a, it's a tough place to do ministry. And when you're not seeing a whole lot of visible fruit, um, it can be, it can be discouraging and these methods can be sort of kind of a quick fix. Like I finally have something that I can apply and, um, that can actually make my ministry seem meaningful or feel meaningful. When we talk about DMM and CPM, it's like a burrito. There are uh, a lot of things wrapped up inside of it. Uh, some good, some concerning, right? And uh, you, you don't want to swallow that entire burrito, right? Um, but but there is some nuance and clarity that's helpful in going into that conversation in contrast with something else that I feel, and I could be wrong, but I, I feel like has largely been repudiated in missiology, uh, conservative missiology, which would be insider movements. Mm -hmm. Did you see anything that was approaching insider movements in your experience with a large organization? Yeah. So, um, the, the first city that we, um, kind of landed on the ground in my, my family and I, we, um, so happened to be a city that, um, is very historical for being one of the, the beginning cities for the insider movement. And um, we were told that that was kind of 20 years, 25 years ago, and most of that had kind of cleaned out. Um, but we, uh, we actually had a lady um, in our neighborhood who was, um, my wife and I were in full-time language study, and we had um, a local lady who um, had just been willing to help out with our kids while we were in class. And um, it was just a great opportunity for our family to get to know a local lady and kind of practice our language. Um, my wife got to know this lady really well and um, was opening the word of God with her, um, sharing the gospel with her on a regular basis. Um, and it wasn't uh, long after meeting her and, and just getting to know her that we uh, we came to find out that she had she had heard the gospel before and that there had been um, almost a decade of other missionaries that had shared with her. And so we were very thankful for that and praise God for that. Um, but over time, uh, my wife started to realize that she, you know, she was actually confessing Jesus to be the Messiah and that she believed he was God, um, but that she was also holding on to some of her Muslim identity. So we were trying to tease that out. We didn't want to be insensitive and we know it's difficult and it, it cost, it would cost her greatly to, to publicly identify with Christ. Um, but for, for a span of months, she would just not, um, she didn't want to publicly profess that she was a Christian. She didn't want to tell her friends that she was a Christian. Um, and so we didn't put a lot of pressure on her. 
Um, but we did find out that there was another Western missionary um, not far from us that had a group of women, um, insider women, identifying as Muslims, but confessing Jesus to be the, the savior. Um, and he was hosting a group of Muslim women in their home um, that were identifying as Muslims and um, sort of um, keeping their Christianity to themselves. Um, and um, yeah, considering themselves to be followers of Jesus, but being kind of relationally and culturally um, still a part of their right. religious community. And that lady, right. our friend, um, she was a part of that group. And people start out in that stage. I mean, to your knowledge, was there an encouragement to stay in that state? Or was there an encouragement? No, come out of that. Count the cost. It might take you a few weeks, months to count that cost, but count that cost and then come out. Like, were we encouraging her to do that or the group that she was affiliated with? Well, speak to what you know. Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, I, I also want to ask you with this, like, why should we believe you? Why should we listen sure. to you? Sure. Yeah. Um, it, you know, And you speak to that as well. Um, but to your knowledge, what was she hearing? Yeah, well, I mean, she was hearing she was hearing the gospel. Um, she was hearing the gospel on a on a regular basis um, from my wife, from from me, from other families uh, in our neighborhood. Um, but she was um, also conflicted because she was being influenced by this group that was meeting in a home. Um, w there were a couple other ladies in this group um, that were known um, in kind of our community um, to be sort of insider and, and kind of convincing our friend that she, um, she shouldn't, she shouldn't um, actually identify as a Christian. She shouldn't come public. With she it. shouldn't, she should not, mm -hmm. she should not do that. Um, and it would cost her greatly in her community, in her, um, you know, her neighborhood. Um, and that is completely fine. Just, just go to the mosque, um, pray to Isa Almasi, um, continue kind of doing the, the Muslim, um, practices, but keep, keep Jesus, um, in, you know, personally in your heart. And so, um, my wife was able to, to tease that out a bit. And, and, and this lady did admit to my wife that she, she was afraid to publicly declare and that she felt she could keep that faith to herself. So why should we believe you? Why, why, why should we give any credence to this? <laughs> you know, um, obviously we want two or three witnesses, yeah. you know, biblically, we don't, we don't want to, uh, um, go on believing, you know, things that are less than encouraging uh, about, sincere brothers and sisters in the Lord trying to do work. So why, why should anyone listen to what you're saying? Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you most definitely, um, don't, don't have to believe me. And I, you know, you want to corroborate any evidence that you're hearing or any, any testimony that you're hearing. Um, but yeah, I, you know, this was just, this was most definitely, um, a, a real life, um, skin and bones experience. Um, all these experiences I've spoken about. And, um, I think that it's, it's, um, I think that Satan is behind um, the confusion of the gospel. I think he wants to camp out in the half truths. I think he wants to s distort scripture. Um, he wants to borrow um, terminology that you know the church uses, and he wants to to, to use that um, on the field, confuse the work of the gospel by any means necessary. So, tell us: is there like I would imagine this produces conflict? Because <laughs> um, you're still a teammate with some of these folks, as far as I understand. Um, is, how, what does that look like in a team setting? Like, is it just agree to agree to disagree? Is there open conflict about it? And how do you handle these kind of situations with leadership? How would you recommend even someone listening to this going like, yeah, I see these things happening on my field and I don't I'm not comfortable with it either. I don't know what to do about it, though. 
Um, what kind of guidance would you give or what have you learned through this process? Yeah, well, you know, it was my first, my first three years on the field. And so yeah. in, in many ways, um, I wanted to show honor to, to my leaders. Um, I wanted to show respect to people that I disagreed with. And, and I quickly came to find that the sort of the prevailing, um, um, mood and attitude towards movement methodology was favorable that most people believed and wanted to follow these, um, these types of methods. As far as confronting uh, leadership, um, there were times where um, I was asked to do things um, that bothered my conscience um, pretty, pretty significantly. Um, and so what, what I wanted to do was I wanted to make sure that I knew what our organization um, believed. I wanted to know um, kind of confessionally where our organization stood on matters. And so they have a, a document that um, kind of um, defines our missiology a bit more um, specifically than um, our kind of our guiding confession of faith of our denomination. But we have this document that um, is is great. And um, I would consult that document often uh, in meetings. I would bring it into um, conversations with my supervisors with the document. And I would kind of ask questions uh, with that document handy. Hey, you, you know, you're asking me to do this. Um, you're saying this about the Bible. Uh, you're saying this about the church. Um, I'm not really seeing our doc, our guiding document is not, is not implying those things. Um, can you just clarify for me? So I just, I asked a lot of questions. Um, I didn't confront, um, directly, but, um, it was evident that I was curious and that I wanted to, to know the truth. Um, and I wanted to, um, I wanted to be faithful and in practice. So what do you think drives, uh, the motivation of, individuals that you've seen perhaps get caught up in, in these more pragmatic rapid reproduction methodologies. Um, we want to practice first Corinthians 13. I can't emphasize this enough. First Corinthians 13, Matthew 18. So, you know, first of all, deal with things directly like Matthew 18 would say with the person and then only up chain it over time as a person is unresponsive. Um, and, and maybe you can even speak to, you know, has that happened in your life? But even beyond that, we want to practice first Corinthians 13 and believe the best about our brothers and sisters in the Lord. So in your opinion, without, you know, playing God and imputing motives to others, what does drive some of the practices? Sure. Well, I think in general, um, there, there's a sort of a pragmatic instinct or pragmatic bent in, in all of us. Um, you know, I think that we want to simplify, simplify, um, solutions to problems. We want to be efficient um, and, you know, we make pragmatic decisions every day. You know, we want to streamline uh, whatever it is that we do. Um, and, and so I think that that's, that's in, in all of us. But unfortunately, we kind of bring that into our ministry practice and our ministry strategy. Um, and we kind of let it drive um, our strategy. If, if, if that, that happens very often in, in all of us, um, we want to accomplish bigger, broader, uh, faster results. And, um, so I think that's a little bit in, in all of us. We want to know what works and what doesn't work. And, you know, I've found that in this, this, if we want to put it under the broad umbrella of movement methodology, that the kind of the foundational question that, that is always being asked and, and desire to be answered is what works and what doesn't work. Um, and I, I'm not so sure that I see uh, that being a question of, of the New Testament, um, what works and what doesn't work. Um, and right. you know, if we can answer that question, um, we want to do it as quickly as possible. We want to formula a silver bullet, 
Um, we we want to do that quickly. So I think in general, there's just there's a bent in all of us to be pragmatic, and we want to answer that question, and that includes figuring out our mission field. Um, so that that's one. I also think that there is you know an eschatological motivation um, that there are you know many on the mission field that kind of have a a, a misemphasized um, urgency that's rooted in an eschatology that you'd find in like Matthew 24, 14, you know, that says, and this, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. You know, there are a lot of, a lot of missionaries who rightly so want, want Christ to return. Um, but I think sometimes right. there's, there's a view on that verse that says you, that we want to hasten the return of Christ. We want to, you know, if we get out to the people groups quickly, if we so broadly, we can kind of accomplish this mis- missionary task, we can accomplish the task of world evangelization. Um, and, and to have that mindset, you kind of have to employ um, pragmatism. You kind of have to use methods that are trans contextual, trans cultural. Um, and so I think there's an eschatological motivation. Um, but I also think um, there, I think that Satan wants to destroy the work of the gospel and there are wolves out there among, amongst us. Um, and they want to stop the work that we're doing. Um, and I have seen brothers, um, and sisters, um, you know, in, in, in Christ colleagues, um, friends, other missionaries that, um, you know, I, I think that they like the praise. They like the praise of man. They like, um, they like the feeling of getting the results. And so they're willing to do whatever it takes to kind of fuel that, that, um, that mm. desire to get praise. And so I think deception is also mm. a motivation. I, I do think that there are, you know, a number though of, of missionaries that are out there that maybe they don't have great theological background and training. And I, I think yeah. there's a lot of missionaries out there that have like a huge heart they, they really, they spent years and not seeing much fruit and they're trying all the methods they could try. And then, and, and it kind of leaves them in a place of desperation of like, let, let's try the next thing, you know? So I do think that there, I mean, at least I, I don't know that I met anyone in my time and I granted, you know, it's a different place and different time that was like, that I would easily be able to go like, yeah, that's a wolf. But, and not that the court, of course we know there are wolves. It's scripture explicitly says there will be wolves so we should look for them but um some of the some of the worst things i saw were done out of really good motives of just like wanting to be effective and not really knowing how to do it without a very good grounding because a lot of a lot of missionaries and a lot of uh agencies don't even don't even think about the local church that's not really part of their consideration and that that causes some of these problems i think I've just been convicted of something that Brad said, which is um, the the praise of man. I, I'm reading through John's gospel right now, just finished John 12 this morning on my Bible reading plan. And how many times John mentions that the Pharisees had regard for the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. See, it's it, it's it's not just that they were after human approval, but that they were after it to the exclusion of the glory that does come from God. And it it is a warning to all of us, regardless of what side you fall on in some of these things, not to have an inordinate thirst for praise. A lot to get into. We also want to move positive and talk about solutions with Brad next. Hey, listeners, want to meet us? 
well, we'd love to meet you. And if you're hungering for a deep, no-fluff missions conference, keep listening. The Radius Missiology Conference is happening June 23rd and 24th at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. The theme this year, Acts, the Gospel Proclaimed Through the Church. Hear from John Piper, Mark Dever, Brooks Buser, Chad Vegas, and more. Now, Scott and myself will be there in person, live, recording, interviewing speakers, and enjoying the fellowship. If you're like us, it's probably been a while since you've been to a conference, so get out of the house and come and enter our drawing to attend for free. That's right, free. Simply go to missionspodcast.com slash RMC for details, and we'll see you there this June at the Radius Missiology Conference. Hi, I'm Scott Dunford, and I'd like to share with you about a new nonprofit ministry established to help churches, Christian schools, and other ministries protect children and prevent abuse. Rich Hamar from Church Law and Tax states that the number one reason that drives churches to court is child sexual abuse. I can't think of anything more devastating to these lives, their families, and our witness before a watching world than sexual abuse that takes place in ministry. The traumatic impact often leaves the vulnerable not wanting anything to do with God or his people. Our efforts toward evangelism, discipleship, and spiritual spiritual formation are not only neutralized, but shattered. Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention was formed to help ministry leaders understand the complexities of child protection and abuse prevention. They are establishing standards and an accreditation program that will help verify that appropriate measures are in place at your church or ministry. Learn more about them. Find a helpful and free assessment tool to help you see how you measure up in this area. Go to abuseprevention.org and click on the link for this resource assessment. Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention. And this June, attend the National Conference. Go to abuseprevention.org and register with ABWE21 as the promo code to receive 20% off your ticket. That's promo code ABWE21 to receive 20% off. And we're back with Brad with a firsthand perspective on some things happening in his part of the world in South Asia. Some missionary tactics and methodologies that we want to dive into a little bit deeper here. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about what's wrong or what's troublesome, what's concerning. But what should missionaries do instead that's more healthy? So, Brad, from your perspective, which methods are better than the ones that you've seen firsthand? Yeah, so, I mean, there's just so much to get into here, right? I mean, there are so many methods, and, and you know, in, in the time that we have here, you know, it may sound like I'm anti-method. I'm not anti-method by by any means. Um, I, I think there are some helpful, helpful, helpful methods, even some of the methods that I wouldn't agree with entirely I've used before to get into gospel conversations and, uh, and things like that. So not anti-method at all. I would just say that um, ecclesiology plays um, such a fundamental role um, in missions. Um, we see that in the New Testament that um, the local church really is the center of missions. It would be the means uh, kind of and the end to the missionary task. Um, and so, you know, what I would encourage um, missionaries to do instead that's more healthy, um, I, I believe that, that missionaries everywhere should prioritize uh, the local church. Now, I realize there are places in the world um, where there are no churches. And so um, it's you can't just gather with God's people on a weekly basis. But um, in, in many of the places in the world where I was, at least, we had local churches. And so um, I would want to encourage my uh, fellow missionaries to prioritize the local church and just to firm up their ecclesiology. Um, I, I truly believe that the, the doctrine of the church is that glorious doctrine that kind of um, protects and clarifies the gospel. 
Um, and uh, it would it would enhance uh, every missionary's ministry um, to love the local church and to invest in the local church. Um, yeah, I you know I, I have a friend mentor, also a missionary, um, who um, it, it was very um, fundamental in 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 kind of shaping my ecclesiology and my missiology. Um, and he used to say that the local church, um, and I think this is a very biblical statement, but he used to tell me that the local church. Um, is the primary agent, the primary fruit, and the primary method of missions. Hmm. And so I would say if we look at the local church as a method, um, I would want to encourage missionaries to uh, press into that a little bit more than, than some of our um, more reductionistic evangelistic methods. Press into the local church as that primary grounds for discipleship, for uh, uh, sending out missionaries, for engaging the lost around you. And um, if if missionaries are not uh, members of local churches and there are churches around them, I would urge them to join uh, local churches and to get um, plugged in and, and be under the authority of those churches and, and just, um, yeah, get in the mix with them. So... You know, coincidentally, tonight I'm I'm meeting with, as a pastor, meeting with some some mission leaders from another agency that that, that it's a it's a ethnic based agency that's doing some things, and they have they've neglected the local church, and they're wanting my opinion as to how to kind of get back to some of those things. I'm really excited about the conversation, um, mm. but mm. but what what would you say to pastors? I think a lot of pastors, like they don't host the missions podcast. You know, they, they, they went to seminary. They had one brief class uh, on maybe on, on missiology. It's not something they're thinking about a lot. And when these kind of issues come up, they just kind of go, well, that's way outside of my realm or disciple making movements. Yeah. We want to make disciples or church planting. That's a good thing to do. They don't understand all of the, the nuances are not going to read the journals are not going to engage in these discussions. They haven't even been maybe through perspectives or something like that. So what would you say, how can pastors and mission supporters, those who are, we have many missionaries who are supported by individuals. How can they use discernment when, when, dis, when leading their churches in missions, but also engaging with the missionaries that are being sent out or that are connecting, connected to them? Uh, how would you help them to go about thinking about strategy and, and even developing some of their own uh, philosophy in these areas? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I, I, uh, I, I've noticed and, and I, and I kind of, I sort of believed some of these things before I, I launched out overseas, but I, I remember kind of thinking, and, and I think this is kind of a prevailing attitude in evangelicalism to kind of, have this sharp distinction between missions abroad, um, ministry overseas, um, and ministry domestically or ministry in, in the States or Canada or in the West, um, almost as if those two worlds are completely different worlds. Um, and, uh, you know, I've noticed that, yeah, a lot of pastors kind of, you know, maybe feel like they, they're just, um, they're not qualified or competent enough to really understand what missions is. And, you know, all of those strategies and methods, those are different than what we do here. Um, and I think in many ways, it's kind of a false dichotomy. Um, you know, we've been given the word of God. The doctrine of scripture is a, is a doctrine that is glorious. And, um, you know, I would encourage pastors to continue pressing into the just the doctrine of scripture, the, the authority of God's word and, and the sufficiency of God's word. And I believe that that doctrine is transcultural. It's, it, it can be applied anywhere in the world. You don't have to be an expert in a culture or a place um, to see and apply that doctrine. 
Um, and so I would want to encourage pastors to say, you have enough, you have enough to understand generally um, what is happening overseas. The doctrine of the church, that's another thing. Um, you know, overseas, there tends to be kind of a negative view on on the church, that it's kind of this traditional, um, you hear a lot of just kind of negative negativity about the church um, in the West in particular. But you know the doctrine of church uh, of the church in scripture um is is transcultural once again it's transcontextual it can be applied yeah. anywhere it can be um church can um can believers can gather under a tree and they can gather in a building with brick and mortar um elders deacons um the ordinances those things can go anywhere in the world and they reflect God's design, which is for our good and for our sanctification, which is the local church. And so I would want to just encourage pastors just be like, Hey, don't be intimidated by um, missions. Like you have everything um, necessary um, to discern what is healthy and what is not um, with the resources of grace and scripture and a firm understanding of the doctrine of the church. Um, yeah, I guess to answer how how they can grow in uh, discernment um, about missionaries, um, I would want to know uh, as a pastor, I would want to know what what these missionaries that these candidates that are coming through your church, I would want to know what they believe about the church. Um, what what are what are their convictions uh, ecclesiologically? Um, right. I, I would want to know that they're healthy ecclesiologically um, before uh, I would want to see how savvy they are with, um, you know, with evangelistic methods and, um, you know, some of these uh, church planting methods. And so I would really, as a pastor, I would just major on that stuff. What do they know about God's word? What do they know about um the doctrine of the church. Um, if, if you're sending out church planters overseas, um, as a pastor, I would want to, I would want to see if they meet the qualifications of an elder that we see in first Timothy three and Titus one, like, would you let these candidates lead a Sunday school in your church? Would you let them lead a small group in your church? You know, if, if not, you, you probably don't want to get, get behind them and send them overseas to plant churches. And so, you know, I just want to kind of even the ground between overseas work and um, work in in America, that there isn't this big chasm between the two. Um, and we have just these amazing resources um, in God's word that can be applied anywhere. And pastors can can really speak into this issue more than they think they can. And for pastors to ask the missionaries that they already support, are you attending church? Yes. If there's a church, if there's a fellowship, if there's a burgeoning church plant within reach are they fellowshipping are they in submission to people around them and not just to their sending church back home but uh, living out those principles of local body life to the best extent possible on the field it's something worth asking what would be a final loving word that you would give to people who are practicing these methods who are listening to this show yeah i mean i want to say i want to be sensitive and, and just say that hey i you know I admire the zeal. I admire the urgency and the sincerity of your desire to see the lost saved. Um, I have so many colleagues um, that, you know, practice these methods and, and, um, and, you know, drive their ministries from these methods and they love, they they genuinely love the lost. Um, And I believe that they are faithful to the gospel. Um, But I, I would want to just sort of in a sensitive way, I would want them to examine and kind of access the source of the authority that holds up these methods. Um, where are you looking to um, for the authority in these methods? Is it kind of in the realm of anthropology? Um, is it theory? 
uh, you know, or, or is it, is it the word of God? Um, are these methods displaying exegetical faithfulness? I know of a few methods right now that I'm thinking of that, um, you know, they kind of, they just kind of string a bunch of Bible verses together to kind of hold up the, hold up the actual method. And, um, I wouldn't say that those verses are, um, displaying exegetical faithfulness and holding up those methods. Um, I would, I would, you know, I'd want them to ask about these methods, uh, about their own motivations. Are, are they, are they concerned with with results um, primarily, or are they more concerned with with faithfulness? Um, and yeah, I, I guess one last word would be um, that you know our success as missionaries will will not ultimately rest in results um, that reflect favorable numbers. Um, and uh, I, you know that's most definitely not going to be the case because we applied a particular method well. Um, God doesn't need our, our methods. Um, he, he actually really doesn't even need us to accomplish um, what he's going to accomplish, but he delights in um, having us come alongside him in this work. Um, and our success is ultimately going to be determined by our faithfulness to God's word, um, the clear proclamation of the gospel and our commitment and love for the bride of Christ, the, our love for the local church. Um, and so, you know, our patient and careful fidelity to God's word um, Christ and his church, that is ultimately going to yield the greatest satisfaction and joy that you could ever know in your labors uh, among the nations. Mm. Love it. Great closing words. And uh, we appreciate you being willing to come and tell all in a winsome way, in a way that prioritizes love. <laughs> and I think that's important in all these conversations. If this conversation has been a blessing to you, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review the podcast in your podcast app of choice that helps get this content in front of others who can be benefited by it. To get more content, go to missionspodcast.com. And while you're there, share the link for this episode with a friend. Until next week, thank you for listening.